This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. Welcome to episode 28 of the World Beyond War podcast. I'm Mark Elliott Stein, and I'm very excited about today's interview with a peace activist who really embodies the values of bold determination and tireless energy for positive action that we are all about at World Beyond War. I'm talking about Jody Evans, who is here with me right now. Hi, Jody. Hi, <laughs> Mark. So, how do I begin to describe the things Jody Evans has done? She is the co founder of Code Pink, the very influential activist organization. And along with Medea Benjamin, she has defined the colorful, imaginative style of disruptive protest that has made Code Pink so effective. She has traveled the world in support of peace to North Korea, Cuba, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Iran, wrote books, produced films, is a co-founder of 826 LA, Los Angeles's branch of the 826 Children's Writing Program, has worked on the administration and campaign of California's progressive governor, Jerry Brown. And when we were preparing for this podcast, Jody, you told me you were arrested the first time in 1969 and stopped counting after 100 arrests. Most recently, Jody has been part of a new peace awareness campaign, China is not your enemy, with the urgent mission of combating the militarist insanity that dominates media coverage of China in USA and around the world. Jody, I attended a couple of your webinars on China, and I'm so impressed with the focus and intensity you project when you speak on this topic. Well, the purpose of the World Beyond War podcast is to highlight the human beings behind the anti-war movement and to try to inspire each other by talking about the work we do. Jody, what is it that drives you and makes you the activist that you are? Well, probably two things. Um, the first is um, my love of peace and and what that means. Um, to me, peace is connectivity. It's sharing. It's caring. It's being human and and in relationship with each other, creating beauty and and be and having the space of creativity open for us and not strangled by what I call the war economy. Um, and it's the insanity of the United States government. (laughs) So both working together, I think, are what uh, keeps me engaged and in the streets every day. Can we go back to the beginning? And this is a question I always ask on this podcast because I'm I'm really interested in what drives peace activists. Can you take me back to when it was early in your life that you discovered you had a mission to try to improve the world, to try to figure out where you can help or, or however you would characterize it. How did this begin? Um, so, I mean, I could start with that. I ran away from home at 12, huh, okay. um, but I, you know, that when things aren't working for me, I, I go into action it seems to be a part of my nature very early. Um, but you know, in, in 1969, I was living in Las Vegas, Nevada, um, my dad worked at the nuclear test site in, in Mercury. He would leave at six in the morning and come home at six at night with a badge around his neck that showed if he'd been in danger zones, which I thought was super insane for adults to do. And um, there was the Vietnam War was happening. Um, we were, um, I, on the block I lived, 
uh, two of the older siblings of my friends came home in caskets. Oh my God. Thing that I thought was totally insane that someone who couldn't even vote came home dead. And that the, and you know, I'd, I'd read Marx and I, I, I thought that the system that my country was under was totally wrong. Um, and why were we bombing people who believed in equality for all? I didn't, I didn't understand that as, you know, as a six, 15 year old, that just didn't make sense. In 1970, I was making a dollar 87 an hour as a maid in one of the hotels. And Jane Fonda came to and marched with us. Um, we were organizing for a living wage and we won. And maids in Las Vegas still make a living wage today. And I continued to go outside of hotels, banging pots and pans at 6 a.m. To, to force them to pay maids what they should make. And so I think the combining of the activism of, you know, forcing a hotel to pay the right wage, which by the way, got me fired because once the union started, I was too young to be a maid. Um, and, um, and then the work we were doing against the war and then the work uh, to, to get 18 year olds the right to vote. Um, I won, you know, my first three engagements. Um, and I was one of the very first 18 year olds to vote in this country. I, I think I, it was, Two days after my birthday was the cutoff for, you know, uh, registering. So um, I think uh, having some early victories probably was meaningful. I don't know. I don't, um, they don't seem to get in my, not winning doesn't seem to get in my way right now. Um, but um, at that time, it was just like, okay, I'm going to spend the rest of my life taking on the man. There's it's this economy that we live inside of the system we live inside of is crazy and people name things like democracy that don't exist and that you know uh this imperialistic um patriarchal murderous um government no matter who's in charge of it um needs to be stopped so that's been my life Wow. Well, you, you've said so much and several things I want to touch back on. If I can start with the first thing you said, I did not know that, that your father was involved in nuclear work or was that mil military testing of, uh, would you the, mind filling that in? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so testing of nuclear weapons, one of the places was the desert of Nevada, before I was born, my mother, father, and grandmother sat on a hill with a picnic watching one of the nuclear bombs explode. Oh, wow. Terry Tempest Williams writes about this because the wind was blowing in the direction of southern Utah, and her family suffered a lot of cancer. My family, we all just got um, thyroid cancer. But then they took it underground, and my dad's an engineer, so he built the systems, and um, he would be one of the first people that walk on top of the land to see what the um, release of, of the nuclear waste was. Um, insane. And I just thought the whole idea of a nuclear weapon was insane. I also grew up in nature, and for me, it is an always has been my nourishment, my sanity, um, my connection to the earth is deep. And that whole, all of that just made no sense to me. Um, 
I think very early, I understood there were no grownups. I think a little bit of that came from growing up in Las Vegas, um, or at least spending my teenage years there, because you didn't see a lot of grownups. Wow. Not only you didn't see a lot of grownups, but, you know, when we were going to high school, uh, you know, the friends, my parents' parents were prostitutes, strippers, musicians, dealers, gamblers. So we we literally didn't have parents because nobody was home. Um, And you'd have to kind of be super quiet picking up your friend from to go to school because their parents had just come home from a shift at four in the morning. I also operated out of, you know, the people in charge are, are insane um, and op- not operating out of reason, but operating out of emotion and uh, their own wounds. I, it, it's fascinating that growing up in Las Vegas brought you that message. For me, growing up in suburban Long Island, very, very different from, from Las Vegas, brought me the same message. And I, I certainly agree. Those who are in charge are, are not in charge because they have the, the best ideas or the best motives. I, I'm really interested to know how your father, who, as you said, an engineer, um, how did he respond to your increasing interest in anti-war activism? Oh, when I ended up at my father's house after running away from my mom's home when I was 13, I showed up and he said, we don't have enough money to support you, so you have to pay your own way. And then we would fight every night at the dinner table because he was not my values. And I would fight with him constantly. Like He would want to take me to church, but then he was for the death penalty. And I was like, what about the Ten Commandments? Don't you understand that? kills at the top (laughs) so uh i was um yeah we still fight all the time our we don't share similar values wow well but i um, also had a stepfather where i lived when i ran away from home and he was in um the air force i was living at the air force academy then and he went on two tours of duty to vietnam and was shot down and after he read the pentagon papers he um left the air force and also not my politics um but he left the air force he felt so um uh just horrible for what he had done and um you know he was a a pilot uh, and um a fighter pilot wow and um he quit, I believe it was like three years before his retirement, giving up all his retirement in disgust at the Air Force. Oh, wow. Okay. And were, were organizations like Veterans for Peace um, meaningful to him? Or I don't know if they existed at the time. No, no. And and he was an officer. So, you know, he was, um, he went on to, you know, it was really interesting to watch him because basically after that, Um, you know, when you're 50, it's really hard to get a job. And then it was very hard to get a job and watching, watching that for a man was, was hard to watch. Wow. So, so you, you had an example there and I'm sure you had others of somebody who really sacrificed for their principles. I mean, what, one question I wanted to ask you is who are your mentors? Who were the ones who opened the doors for you? And and maybe this was one of them, your stepfather. Uh, well, I mean, that happened, um, around 69. So it it meant something to me that somebody who didn't share my values, but could feel betrayed by his government, um, you know, that I, I, I was, it made me think more of him. Um, but 
I, you know, I got engaged in the McGovern campaign uh, in Vegas and so then went to Los Angeles to go to college. And I spent most, I barely went to class and was mostly engaged in the McGovern campaign. And one night they had a party for the volunteers and I met Jerry Brown. Um, I met Max Pilevsky, who was the chair of the campaign and who was on Nixon's um, enemies list, number one on Nixon's <laughs> yeah. enemies list as the... Um, Ahead of businessmen against the war, and I went met Warren Beatty, and I was 17 years old. Um, but uh, it changed my life, and I got involved um, later. Jerry Brown called, and I was one of the first people engaged in his campaign to run for governor in '73. Wow. And you mentioned Jane Fonda earlier, who I know you are still getting arrested with. To, yes. <laughs> to this day, so. Um... Uh, well, I, I admire your mentors. I've always a- admired both George McGovern and Jerry Brown. I'm curious, and you know, we could probably spend a, a lot more time talking about this. Do, do you feel that Jerry Brown, I, and I do remember his presidential campaign, do you feel he could have made a difference and that there was a different possible future for the USA if that campaign had broken through? So I don't actually believe anyone with those values has a chance of winning because the way the system is set up. When I asked Jerry to run in that, so the campaign was about a a message. It was that if you don't get money out of politics, it doesn't matter what you care for because the money will always win. And so I, he was chair of the um, Democratic Party at the time. And I said, you know, why don't you run for president? You won't win, you know, just you got to run knowing they will never let you win. They kill you first because they can't control you. Um, and so uh, the whole idea was um, on that we needed to talk about money and politics. And um, certainly we ha- the values of the campaign were my values. And I would have loved uh, for the team because it was the whole point of it also was that it was a community. Jerry was the candidate, but the community made up the values. And um, it was a chance for me every morning I got to wake up and I'd been part of every presidential campaign up to 92. So um I wanted to do it differently than presidential campaigns were run because they were run horribly in the sense of they were disconnected from the people and, you know, people would just parachute in states and not understand the issues. So, you know, in every state, they were run by the people of the state. And we won in states where activism and grassroots organizing were were big because that's who we engaged. And those were the ideas we engaged. Um, it was for the planet and the people, which is, um, you know, what the, what the issues were about. And that if you cared about the planet and the people, that if you didn't get money out of politics, it didn't matter that you cared for them because money would always win. And um, we started with eight people in the race and it ended up just Clinton and Jerry. Um, running against the Clintons has me forever hating them because of disgusting and horrible and rotten that felt. And at some point they started coming at us full of dishonesty and, and, and really vile. And um, I just pulled us out because then it's like all the, we were running by the way on a hundred dollars, only a hundred dollars. So, um, and it's totally grassroots. We didn't have one staff person, you know, some people in the field got paid a per diem, but everything was volunteer. And I was just like, you know, they're going to crush us. So why get crushed? So the 
um, uprising um, in LA was happening after the Rodney King uh, decision. And I said, that's, you know, what matters is what matters in the cities. And we need to, you know, take the light that we have and shine it on this, that, you know, this is racism right now in our face and nobody's paying attention to it. So Jerry went to LA for a couple of weeks and went around and talked on the media about what was actually happening. And, um, and I saved what money we had left and we took over the convention for two days. So we had 600 delegates. We didn't lose a one. Clinton tried everything, but the delegates were committed to those values. And it wasn't politics as, as usual. It wasn't delegates that were bought. It was delegates who had fought they fight every day with their life for people on the planet and they weren't going to compromise for the Clintons. So, and then we got to take over the convention and, and really expose the convention as not a democratic. Um, Ann Richards was the head of the, the convention. She called me and said, Jody, you know, you just have to stop this. And I'm, we, Jerry's not going to get to talk at the convention. I'm like, I know the rules. I've been in enough conventions. We, this was only Jerry's third time being a candidate. I knew mm-hmm. every rule. And, um, and he got to talk. And they, you know, they, wanted, they wanted to control it. And it was the most uncontrolled convention since 68. Like, a lot of, you know, a lot of the people that have been leaders in the campaign went on to do beautiful things. Um, Tim, who was one of my deputies, got you know, talk Bernie into running for president. Oh, wow. And talk about our campaign and how if you speak to the people, the people are there for you. And um, uh, Wellstone, who was the deputy in um, Minnesota, went on to be an amazing senator. So um, it, you know, it was it was a fun project that I think what I do try to do is create things that are disruptive. And it, it, it was disruptive and nourishing. Um, mm-hmm. So, and it, you know, it's what we try to be at Code Pink, disruptive and nourishing. <laughs> By the way, you know, Code Pink has been very influential for me. Um, I, I'm now very involved with World Beyond War, but I was following what Code Pink was doing. I would say during during those critical years for myself when I was confused what to believe. And I do feel that disruption is a word that defines Code Pink in a in a very positive way. I think, you, you know, you, you, you offer disruption with a purpose and well so mark i, I want to say something i i was working in watts yeah, i continued the work in watts um to expose the racism of the culture and um i learned there that twenty thousand people had died in the last 20 years now this is 20 years ago and that it was a war zone that nobody talked about and when Bush started talking about uh, weapons of mass destruction and going to war on innocent people, I flew to D.C. because that was, you know, the war comes home. Those gang members' dads had all been in Vietnam. The war came home to our community. And um, I was one of the founding board members of the Drug Policy Alliance where I had seen the drug policy was racist and, you know, Forming drug policy was about ending racism of the drug war. And so going to D.C., I had just flown in to just stand outside the White House with my primal scream for anyone who was confused out there. And when you said that, that's why I do this work. There is so much. We live in a sea of lies and manipulation. And I feel like that's what Code Pink does. Yeah. We stand in the face of power with another message so someone out there can feel sane. 
in what they believe and what they know. And we're, you know, just launching this new campaign to cut the Pentagon in half. And it's to stand in front of all this bullshit you've seen for the last two weeks about Afghanistan and say, okay, talk all you want, but there is only one answer to this. And that is to slash the Pentagon. They are on crack. And it is the drug of money that keeps pouring in yes, yes. to this greedy machine that makes the rich richer and the rest of the world poorer. But certainly what we can look at after COVID is it doesn't make us more secure. What we now know is the peace economy, the giving, sharing, caring, thriving relational economy is what makes us more secure. It is the caregivers. It is the those that are doctors and nurses and, um, you know, teachers, what makes us secure is knowledge and caring for each other. And so this lie about security that we throw 65% of our tax dollars into is a lie. And it's like, it's pants just got pulled down for everyone to see. And if everyone does not move in, engage in right now, Barbara Lee's bill to slash the Pentagon in half, and it's a bill, a not, a not a frivolous bill. It is a bill that we've been working with the Poor People's Campaign and Institute for Policy Studies and National Priorities Project to create line for line how you can take $350 billion out of the Pentagon budget. And it must happen because they are delusional. They are high on the crack of money. Yes, continues. Yeah. I mean, every the stories that we can hear right now about Afghanistan, um, one of the fellows that we had um, talked to Code Pink last week, he was the head of trade in Afghanistan during the Karzai government. And he was trying to do anything. He loved his country. He'd gone back, given himself fully to like help it, his country. And he said, what I would find out is that there would be a contract to build the road between Kandahar and Kabul. It would be a $2.5 billion uh, contract. It would go to some company in Virginia he'd never heard of. But then he would go talk to the people actually building the road. And it was a Turkish company that got $500 million for it. So the company in Virginia had pocketed all the cash. And then it was being built by this Turkish company. Right. Um, so... I also um, was just talking to a, a U.S. soldier here in Oregon, and he said that, you know, he hated the military and its corruption, that he served in Iraq and he's an engineer, and they would tell him to go blow up a building for no reason, and then they would put out a contract to rebuild the building. That the And do you know that, like, more military contractors died than soldiers? that 5,000 military contractors have died in Afghanistan. And we don't talk about all the deaths. We, first of all, we don't, we talk about soldiers' deaths, but we don't talk about contractors' deaths. And we don't talk about the deaths of all the Afghan people. Right. The cost of this war to people, to women, to children, to leaders of communities, to the very fabric of a society. I mean, it has to stop. Yes. It just has to stop. And if anyone is doing anything, I mean, like the he said, she said, who's wrong? Wrong is the U.S. military and the government of the United States of America. Mm -hmm. Wrong to right. have destroyed. How many countries have we destroyed? Libya, Syria, Iraq, um, Afghanistan, and Iran silently with sanctions. Yes. And now we're, you know, we're trying to destroy. Biden has told his his contributors he's just that close to destroying human government so that then from now on, the Democratic Party can count on the Florida going blue. I mean, starving people to death. 
I mean, Democratic mm. Party is, I mean, it, yeah, yeah. The insanity <laughs> of the notions of why people do things, we need to watch and we need to act from our hearts and um, cut the Pentagon for people, for planet, for peace, and for a future. Well, first, let, let me place this in time because um, I like this podcast to be evergreen. It's, and I hope this interview will, will be listened to for a long time, you know, and, and all our episodes. So we're talking in the summer, in August of 2021. And what you're referring to when you say that the pants are down, you know, <laughs> the, 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 the insanity is exposed is the fact that the United States just pulled its forces from Afghanistan. And there has been a tremendous and ridiculous um, outpouring of pro-war sentiment in the US media, because it just seems like all of a sudden, everybody realized that the war in Afghanistan wasn't going well for 20 years. And this is so this is the, you know, sort of setting for what you're talking about. Um, I mean, Assange is in jail because he exposed yeah. 11 years ago. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in the fact that you have traveled to these places. And when you talk about, for instance, um, you know, the effect of, on women and children and, and human beings in Afghanistan who are not U.S. soldiers and not military contractors, one real outrage in the past few days is that there was a terrorist attack outside the, the airport where they're evacuating personnel from Kabul, and 13 U.S. personnel have died. And it's absolutely clear that U.S. media values those 13 U.S. personnel on a completely different scale than, you know, the human beings. Do, do they understand that they are human beings in Afghanistan? So since you have traveled the world, I'd really like to know the answer to this question. How does the rest of the world comprehend the United States' attitude? So let's look at this attitude because even to build weapons means you don't understand they're human beings. Anyone yes. who builds a weapon has no clue what happens when that weapon is deployed. And it is horrific. It is so horrific. Um, I want to answer your question with an example from a Pashtun leader in our trip to Pakistan to um, meet with the families of drone victims, of U.S. drone victims, when Obama had killed Tuesday and he was setting, you know, drones off across um, Pakistan. This Pashtun leader talked about his son had just graduated and he was going to become the teacher for the village. And they had gone off to town to buy food, to celebrate the graduation. When he returned, his brother and his son he had to pick off the skin of them, mm. the walls of the destroyed home. That it was just, he was picking off the skin, trying to have enough to bury. Oh my God. And he says this shaking. And then he starts pounding the table. I just want to kill an American soldier. I just want to kill an American soldier. And when he finished pounding the table, Code Pinker from the Bay Area said to him, if you had a drone and you could fly it over the United States, what would you do? And he said, nothing because I would kill innocent people. That's right. That is who we are in the United States of America. We are killing the most beautiful, humane, thoughtful, kind people who live lives of connectivity and consciousness that is pretty absent 
in the United States of America. Yeah. That there is not, a, the streets are not overflowing with people saying, stop, stop. In the name of love, in the name of peace, in the name of humanity, stop. That that is not happening. When you, when I go to places, the women say to me, why don't the women of the United States use their power and stop this insanity? Those, that's one of the things I get. But I, you know, one of the places that was so profound was being in Northern um, Korea and we were trying to cross the DMZ and um, trying to figure out who to talk to so that we could cross the DMZ because it's not South Korea. The agreement, the DMZ agreement is not with South Korea. It's with the United States, that it had to come back to the United States and to realize that it was the United States of America that had stopped for 70 years. Korean people, mothers and sons and sisters and brothers and fathers and husbands and wives from seeing each other, I still can't feel it is too big. Yeah. I can't even imagine. That's tens of millions of people that we did that to, that went to their deaths without ever seeing their loved ones again. That's insane. That is insane. All the things we do every day, the sanctions right now on Iran that have devastated the middle class of Iran, a country of kind and generous people, a country that does live out of a peace economy, um, a country that has a market economy, yes, but it lives out of a peace economy where everyone is taken care of. Venezuela, Cuba, we are starving them to yes. death yes. as a political maneuver. That is war. That is violence. That is cruelty. We are starving people to death for a political agenda. Yeah. That is insane. So um, when I say pulled the pants down on Afghanistan, we have tried for the last 20 years to expose what is happening in Afghanistan. We have tried to pull it out from under the skirts of women. Remember, they used women as the excuse to, to, to go on this war, which was a lie from day one. Code Pink has been out there. We've gone to Afghanistan. We, I brought back 4,000 signatures to Obama saying, don't escalate. The women of Afghanistan don't want it. Um, I, you know, if a, a woman, a member of the parliament in Afghanistan, um, I was trying to, you know, asking her to say in the paper. And she said, of course, could you please tell President Obama that these Taliban are our children? Who does he think they are? They're our children. She was a um, OBGYN and she she said, I gave birth to all of them. I delivered them into this world. We're so, the, the conversation, the manipulation, the lies that we are fed daily in the U US have disconnected us from our hearts and from caring and from loving each other. The whole system of the war economy alienates us, confuses us, yes. um, and, you know, and pits us against each other instead of, you know, living in the world where we understand we are all connected, where our decisions affect everyone, um, where we get out of the stupidity of selfishness that is the, the U.S. system and into that of interconnection because otherwise we'll, we can't survive. Well, Jody, what I think we're up against is that 
not only do most people not understand, most people I speak to in the United States not understand the truth of what you just said, but many people actually believe that we, the USA, are the only do-gooders in the world. <laughs> We're the do-batters. <laughs> yeah. We're the do-batters in the world. <laughs> and um, everyone in the world knows that. <laughs> and, and yet, you know, because you are a citizen of this country, you know, but not not necessarily by our choice, but by by birth, um, you know as well as I do, I'm sure, how fixed this delusion is. And so when I hear you say these things, and I completely agree, and my heart goes out to every word you're saying, I am disgusted, enraged, and and baffled that <laughs> um, our media has, our media and our education, and really our entire culture has flattered us, the American people, to the extent that we believe the opposite is true. Many people think we are helping Venezuela. People think we're helping Cuba by by making it difficult for for the, I mean as you know as as I've learned from Code Pink, Cuba's doctors helped the world during the COVID crisis. And yet I bet if we were to take a poll in the United States, most people would say that um we helped Cuba <laughs> during the COVID crisis. No we didn't. And we didn't help Iran. Um sanctions are war. So I, I But Mark, it's I you also it's not I don't believe that anything is static and anything is determined. Good. I believe we co-create the future every day. And yes, there's, you know, too many years of United States citizenry, not me, believing in the lies because it made them feel good and it made them feel powerful. And people always in empires are stupid. That's just the, the nature of empires because it creates this delusional thinking in you. But um there are also many people in the United States that see it. And, you know, at Code Pink, we spend half of our time stopping the war economy and half of our time cultivating peace economies because you can't just be against something. You have to also be cultivating the thing that needs to arise to take its place. After I finished Jerry's campaign in 92, I knew this empire was dying. I mean, it was the, the ugliness. It was it was just so ugly and so delusional and and really just ugh, disgusting so I, I but you know rome took 75 years to die so my friend joe costello said so you know 75 years the u.s will be ungovernable and it continues every year to prove more and more to be true and um so you know we have to we have to the the war economy is our culture and we all have it in us we are these fish swimming in this war economy and we have to break we have to divest ourselves from these war economy habits. We don't even under, it's like we're trying to stop war, but it's the war economy. It's not war. War serves the war economy. Mm -hmm. Until the war is gone, we got war. So we got to stop the war economy, but the war economy is, is, is going to destroy itself or, or the whole world. Um, you know, yeah. so we have to destroy, it's like, on, it's on a, it's the Titanic on the trajectory to go off and we've got to jump off and be building and it's happening. And, and when I first started talking about it, I am just blown away by how fast it happens, by how quickly people can divest themselves from the patterns where, um, you know, I check in with everybody like, you know, I'm out there talking about this. What do you, you know, 
What should I say the downside is? And most people say they've never worked harder in their life, but they've never been more fulfilled. And so we have all these, you know, work saving devices, but really work is what fulfills us. But work that we that that actually creates our world and the work of our creativity and the work of our interconnectivity that creates the landscape of beauty and, and love and and where we realize how little we need and how much nourishes us that we had thrown away. And so, you know, part of the work of Code Pink is cultivating peace economies. And um, this last summer, it was about planting seeds of peace. And so many, we did it on Zoom across the country. And how many people had never grown a garden that fed them and their community? And so they grew gardens in their front yard. And the whole adventure of growing is to bring us back to what it is to love and care and nourish and how you know what it is to plant a seed and watch it grow. And we all need to be planting seeds of peace so that now they have these gardens in their front yard that are feeding their community or that they're harvesting to take and feed those that are in-house right now. And that itself is a planting a seed of peace and another of hope, of love, of connectivity. So we, yes, I'm always going to put myself in front of power and disrupt its insanity. And I know I have to be cultivating locally because when you get down to it, we didn't start these wars and you and I aren't going to win in them. We're going to stand in the face of power and it, if it gets shamed enough, will change its behavior. I don't have a lot of hope in that. What I do have a lot of hope in is as we cultivate our local peace economies, less and less will will hold up this power. You know, every time we vote, every time we talk these people's names, we empower them. Well, we need to be empowering other things. And It all happens locally. Our lives happen where we live. And we've forgotten that. We've forgotten the responsibility of what we're creating locally and what we're cultivating. Because if we do cultivate beauty, my friend Akila Shirelles, who was who I met when I went into Watts um, to work and um, we took the money from the police and we created community um, policing. And he's done that in um, Newark where it showed, you know, after Baraka's dad had gone through, you know, the Watts riot in a whole other way than what happened re- this last summer, because Akila had been there creating community connection. You know, the drug war, it's, it's everything. All this, the war on poverty, it's about connectivity. And only together can we have a future because the patterns of the war economy are centuries old, but really in the 19th, you know, in the 20th century, they got solidified and we've got to break them down. We've got to show them for the lie that they are. And just like war just got its pants pulled down in um, Afghanistan, we've got to pull the pants down of all these stupid ideas that aren't real. They're stealing our lives, the lives of our community and the lives of the planet. So we've got to take that back. And I, I think that as fast as I'm watching these um, peace economies create, I have, I have so much faith because even like in in communities where we quit polluting the ground, the ground comes back so quickly. So I, I think inside of us that we know what we need and that we need to move out of the delusion that we swim in every day and swim in fresher waters yeah. and um, be the the cleaning algae uh, that, you know, takes away the delusion. And it happens pretty fast. Um, we, we can. I mean, look at what China has done in such a short period of time. In the 1970s, you know, we used to say, you know, eat everything on your plate because a Chinese child is is starving. 
Well, you know, they made some decisions that involved everyone believing in what those decisions could actually lead to because the leadership was committed to the people. And they just finished taking everyone out of abject poverty. A billion, three hundred, four hundred thousand people. I mean, that's, you know, over four times the United States. Yeah. They've, they have a commitment to the people and the planet. And they iterate very quickly. They, they're able to, oh, dear, that was a mistake. Let's not do that again. What did we learn from that mistake? How did we get there? What delusion led us there? What bad fa- habit led us there? How do we change those bad habits? How do we learn about it? And, you know, she goes into like five different cities and says, well, let's, there's a problem. Let's try this here, this here, this here. And let's see whichever one succeeds. We'll move it to all of them. I mean, so the, the R&D of how do we live on this planet together? How do we take care of each other? How do we respond to a pandemic? How do we respond to um, pollution in our cities? How do we respond to the needs of the people? Uh, that's not happening in yeah. a delusional empire, let's just say. I attended a couple of your webinars. One of them was at World Beyond Wars annual um, gathering on behalf of China is not your enemy, which is a great title. Did you think of that China title? Is not, yes, China is not our enemy. Oh, China is not, I'm sorry, <laughs> thanks. It's not your enemy or my enemy or our enemy. <laughs> enemy. I was the first, so I attended a couple of years of yours and I, you also recommended um, Dong Sheng News, which is a news source that gives something beyond cliches um, in terms of news from China. So I have been following this. I've done a lot of reading about the history of China in the 20th century. I mean, I consider it very much a war-torn society. And I think if we're talking about the history of China, we, we can't not talk about the effect of, of constant war, horrible, horrible war. Um, yeah, well, nobody seems to know that about 30, 20 to 30 million people died in World War II in China. Yes. You know, Jody, actually, um, we did a... I w- you you delivered that message at our World Beyond War gathering, and we actually talked about it on this podcast already because I found that fact so shocking. I thought I knew history. The, the um, damage done in China during World War II, it was completely unknown to me. Um, I, what was- the opium wars from, from you know, England, those were yeah. devastating. Well, wh- what really landed with me your message about china was that this is a society or you know a, whether we call it a nation a society a civilization of gigantic scope which has is as old as any society on earth um has its own religions has its own literature has its own arts what i got the what what gave me the most from your talks on China is simply the idea um, that we could give China the courtesy of viewing them on their own terms instead of constantly filtering a, a very distinct and unique society through only through the lens of how different they are from us. Did you travel to China? Do you, you know, because that was to me a, a very unique message and a very valid one. Where did that and come from? Very spontaneously. I have my husband lives in China and I'd been going back every month. Okay. And so basically living there, you know, we have two homes and, and so I, I, 
you know, I, when I would come and I, I, when I would go, I would post all my pictures on Facebook and people would love them and say, oh, well, thank you. And then all of a sudden at the beginning of January, everybody was like, China's the enemy. <laughs> and I'm like, what happened y'all? <laughs> China's not our enemy. <laughs> it, yeah. What? No desire to be our enemy. They're, they're, they don't want to be anyone's enemy. They actually, that doesn't even fit their thinking. They're, they think in, in a very different way. And, and, you know, one of the interesting facts is that in the 1500s, when Europe set out in their ships to conquer and, and exploit the world and colonize, um, Chinese burned their ships and decided to build the Silk Road. So, you know, they understand the connectivity. Peace is about connectivity. And that's where they arise from. Um, you know, at the at the core of China is Confucianism and Buddhism, and these values permeate. You know, I don't know. You know, Christianity is a pretty violent religion, um, and so at the core of of there is is the understanding that we are all connected, that we are responsible for everyone, and that you know and. Um, a market economy, which is what they, which, which is what everyone always has to have is some form of a market economy is where they invest in the market economy and the infrastructure so everyone can participate because they don't want to be an empire. They want everyone participating. They actually value what everyone has to offer instead of see it as another that needs to be destroyed. They have great value for everything you know they're 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 super interested they're, it they come at things in that way of value and and i think that's one of the first things that shook um touched me about going to iraq before we invaded was what it was like to be in a culture where not everybody needed to be right where the conversations were really conversations about learning from each other and that nobody spoke into the conversation that they knew the answer and um that when we invaded iraq it was the um, most educated country per capita on the planet, that um, the most PhDs per capita were Iraqis who wanted to um, come into the modern world, wanted to be educated. And it was also a socialist government. Everyone had a home, had food and had education, and you could have as much education as you wanted. The government paid for you to go anywhere you wanted to get an education. So we destroyed that. Mm. Um, so, you know, when you talk about Afghanistan, it's like we do not know how in the imperialist um, thinking that has been the water we swim in. Uh, for some reason, uh, it, it's very hard to look out and value the other instead of destroy the other and um, learn from the other and find fascinating um, how other people live and um, how they, you know, it's uh, the indigenous in, in Alaska. When a child is born, they cry. And when someone dies, they celebrate. Mm. The opposite of what really? We do. <laughs> I love that. Because when someone comes into form, into body, um, it's suffering, right? It's, wow. it, it's like... <laughs> yeah, no, I know, I know. Come from the free spirit into form, and that's suffering. And so they cry for the suffering that will be. And then when you die, you go back into the freedom of spirit. Um, and so, um, you know, like there's so much to learn from each other in this form that we have, that we should all have empathy for each other because here we are in form trying to find our way into a meaningful, useful and contributing life. And it's, it's a process and it's, you know, got its, 
it's definitely a process. We should have compassion for everyone for yeah. what this process is and love each other and delight in the ways that we find to make our way through this, what we call life. And instead, uh, the, this empire decides it has the right to murder people, which is not okay. Yeah. You amazingly answered the the question I was going to ask next, which is about your underlying philosophy. Um, and you know, I want to mention, uh, even though this is a podcast and our listeners can't see either of us, I, I see a very nice picture of George Harrison behind you, um, who who actually was definitely instrumental to me as a as a young person discovering Hinduism and Buddhism, which affect me very much. Um, is there is there a particular philosophy or spirituality that powers everything you do? Love. Nice. I think it's at the core. Um, it's what I studied all the religions and at the core, that's what I found in each of them. And then, you know, just the, the teachings are how do we stay there? How do we stay coming from love? And, um, and that sense of connectivity that's at the core of all the religions. And um, my son's a Buddhist priest, so um, ah, okay. As what, what, was, what type or what? Um, you know, then, nice, then. nice. So, um, but I'm, uh, you know, my genealogy comes from the island of I'm Welsh, Irish, Scottish, and English. Okay. So where I really dove the deepest was into um, the Celtic religion because I wanted something that pointed the way to love that also had my genes in it. But I think all, all the, at the core of all religions um, is love and, and this connectivity to each other and, and passion and compassion and empathy. Wonderful. I, and needless to say, I could not possibly agree more. Um, I think I'm, I think I'm very like-minded with you and that's one reason I, I really appreciate doing this interview with you. Um, a couple more questions. When you founded, co-founded Code Pink, um, did you have in mind what it eventually came into? Did you know what you were creating? Um, and and how how was your original conception different from what Code Pink is today? So um, I literally put myself on a plane and flew to do a primal screen outside the White House. <laughs> and when I got there, I called a bunch of friends and invited them over to a girlfriend's house and said, what are we going to do? This is crazy. Um, you know, that, uh, what was it? A preemptive strike on an innocent country. Um, that just was insanity at a new level. And so in the room was Starhawk and Medea and Caroline Casey, who, um, in May of that year, we, I organized with, um, Nina Simons of Bioneers. We'd organized 35 women to come, uh, on a, on a retreat space that I had to be unreasonable women for the earth. And we'd been called to be unreasonable women by Diane Wilson, um, who uh, uh, is wrote the book Unreasonable Women, but she'd been uh, said at Bioneers, um, a reasonable woman conforms to the world. May we all be unreasonable women. And so it's mm -hmm. like, so be unreasonable women together. And Pramila Jayapal uh, wrote the first call of like the t to stop the war. So oh. Okay. Kind of had already organized this little collective. And then the one the ones of us that were in town 
we said, okay, um, because Caroline Casey had already called Code Hot Pink for the Earth. Hmm. Um, we said, well, let's just call, you know, it's Bush is frightening the American people with war with the code red and code orange and code yellow. Let's call Code Hot Pink. Hmm. But when we went to do the um, website, it was a porn site. So we had to shorten it to Code Pink. <laughs> <laughs> I think it works better this way anyway. <laughs> So um, we planned that day. We we found out that the the bill was going to go to Congress from Congress to the White House um, the next morning, and they were going to have a, a press conference at the White House. So we did a big banner. It said "No War," and 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 we were going to meet at the White House and hang it on the front fence. And then we we painted little. Um, Doves of peace, pink, and we we were gonna pin them to our bra and on our bellies, right? Um, read my tits, no war in Iraq, <laughs> and then we were gonna disrupt the hearing in Congress that day. We did all of that, and so I would say that's what Code Pink does every day. We're audacious. We disrupt power. Um, Diane got arrested hanging the banner on the White House. She climbed up on the stoop and hung it, and then. You know, everybody thinking she's a terrorist comes running and we're getting calls. You're on the news. And um, as soon as they found out she's an anti-war activist instead of a terrorist, they went off the news. Uh. Um, and then we got to meet a lot of members of Congress with our our um, our birds on our, on our bras, our doves of peace on our bras, and talk to them about voting, right, including Senator Wellstone. And we got Nancy Pelosi to break with leadership because she was the whip and be against the war. And then we went to the hearing and Medea goes, I have, I can't join you. We had the banner. We were already go. She said, I'm going to sit over here because I can't get arrested. I've got to drive to New York. Mm-hmm. I, Amy Goodman, I emcee her fundraiser tonight for um, Democracy Now!, and so she sits over there. So we get up and we say, the world does not want this war. And um, we're, we're, we're shouting and um, Hyde, the, who was sharing the hearing, he says, get them out of here. He didn't say arrest us. He said, just get them out of here. So the cops started pulling us out. But while we were saying it, Medea was clapping. Hmm. And Hyde says, and her too. And <laughs> Cynthia McKinney, who was you know one of the congresswomen, looks over at him and she says, since when does somebody get kicked out of a hearing for clapping? <laughs> And Lloyd says, she was bothering me. And Cynthia McKinney said, she wasn't bothering me. And he looked over at her and said, that's because your skin is thicker than mine. And we were just like, oh my God, you have to say that in a, in a congressional hearing? And then he looked over at Medea and said, arrest her. So she got arrested. We got out. So it started with arrest. It started with being audacious in front of Congress and delivering another message. And it just started with disrupting a hearing. So we have continued every day of good... I mean, and we started it to stop a war. And so we're still trying to stop this insanity called war. Um, neither Medea or I thought this would be what we'd be doing with the, you know, 20 years of our life. We keep looking at each other. Should we stop? And I'm like, no, because it's still going. I th- we check in with each other every six months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, you know, to make sure, and we try to evolve it constantly with new campaigns. Definitely seven years ago with creating like halftime, we can be starting to stop the war, but halftime we've got to be cultivating peace economies. Um, So, uh, and then soon we will just be spending all of our time yet again in Washington with Cut the Pentagon. Yep. Well, um, 
it really is amazing how it's evolved. By the way, we had Ariel on a, a couple of months ago, and, and now I think the co-director along with Emily. And I love the way the organization grows. I'm really interested to ask you as a seasoned peace activist, how do you think um, the peace movement is doing today and also specifically World Beyond War? How do you think we're doing? Are there any messages that you'd like to deliver to the peace movement? Well, first of all, World Beyond War is our like partner mm-hmm. <laughs> in peace. So yes. it's our a super valuable, super loved partner. And um and it's so important what World Beyond War does, first of all, by making it global. You know, mm-hmm. wherever I go, like, you know, sign somebody up in this country, in this country. Um, but really first it's important that we hold on to each other, that we become tuning forks for each other, for our community, for our friends. Because activism, we can only affect the person closest to us. And the more we know and the deeper we can take the knowledge and the more ground we can give someone else to support them in coming our way, that's really important right now because we don't have a peace movement. We have a bunch of people committed to peace, but a movement is something that makes power so uncomfortable that it has to change its behavior. What we are doing at Code Pink, what you're doing at, you know, at World Beyond War, what they're doing at Vets for Peace, what all our sisters and brothers are doing in this movement is building a movement. That's our biggest job right now. And, and a movement that is a big tent. You know, uh, we, 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 some of the mistakes, you know, looking at our mistakes and, and fixing them. And what I would say some of the mistakes early on, especially before the war in Iraq, was division. And we can't afford division. We can all be together and be for peace and have lots of different political views. And so we, we need to beat, and it's one of the things I've worked hardest with, uh, and uh, China's not our enemy, is we have a very big tent. We have lots of different political views, but we share one thing in common, that we know war and aggression on China is the biggest mistake the United States could make right now. And that, you know, weaponizing these islands where we're destroying pristine ecosystems and violating the lives of indigenous communities is wrong. And to step towards war is always the wrong decision. So what we have from left to right is a knowledge that that is the wrong way to go, that China is not our enemy, and the only way we should be engaging with China is is cooperation. Cooperation on um, the planet, cooperation on pandemics, cooperation on the needs of the people across this planet that are starving. Um, you know, starvation is up. Um, you know, to get us out of the the devastation of uh, the neocolonialism and and empire and all the devastation that this this thinking has created. Um, so, you know, China's the place. And cutting the Pentagon is the place. And we need the biggest tents. And we need to be able to articulate. And that's why being part of these communities, and that's why you having a podcast, and that's why all the webinars, is that we need to be strong tuning forks for peace so that people can feel sane, even as they look out and they're just fed insanity all day. You know, it, it, that's our job. Right now, our job is to educate and build and grow because we have to stop this madness. And it needs more of us. What great closing words. We've been talking for an hour and um, that really sums it up well. Jody, you are such a such an inspiration. Um, I, I think you know how much you do, but I wonder if you know how many people it touches. Um, and so I just want to say thank you and keep it up. Keep, and I will keep it up and we will all keep it up. And, keep it up. We yeah. all need to keep it up. 
up. Yes. <laughs> and we need to hold on to each other and support each other and love each other. So you can only do this if you're in love. So, you know, I know that what we look out at is horrible and ugly and makes us cry and devastates our hearts. And so, you know, what Madi and I do is we just hold on to each other and we go into action. So, you know, action is the biggest cure for this ugliness that we have to watch and being together and taking care of each other and being in love is the antidote. I'm going to carry those words with me. Thanks for being here. (laughs) Onward to peace. much for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war. Not war. Not war.